Welcome to Ogre What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's show, we've all heard the claim that the UK, or at least England, is a conservative nation at heart, which occasionally gives Labour a go, as long as they don't scare the horses. But with the Tories in meltdown and social attitudes changing, does that hold true? Business and Trade Secretary Kemi Bednock is the most likely candidate to lead the Tories during their wilderness years, so we're going to take a closer look at who she is and what she wants. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, Culture Secretary Lucy Fraser is giving Ofcom new powers to regulate alleged BBC bias. But when the corporation's output includes news, comedy, drama, and apparently Gary Linker's tweets, how can you identify bias? <laughs> Let's meet the panel. Rachel Cunliffe is Associate Political Editor at The New Statesman. Hello, Rachel. Hello. Jeremy Hunt is talking about tax cuts of around £20 billion in the March budget in a last-ditch attempt to fling cash at voters. There's been some challenging of the buzz phrase fiscal headroom. Yes. Uh, the plan, obviously, the Tory plan is to make life difficult for Labour, either raise tux taxes or cut spending. Ha ha. Um, is there a problem with this whole idea? Because it's quite, a, I don't remember hearing that phrase as much. No, this is all about fiscal rules and about uh, governments showing that they are responsible and can handle the nation's finances because they set the rules and they stick to them. And that is important because the international markets look at that and if it looks like the government isn't meeting its its mm. fiscal rules let's <laughs> trust uh then then things go horribly wrong um but the way that they enact the rules can be twisted bent out of all recognition and one of them is that debt national debt has to be falling in five years time and that's how jeremy hunt has found this extra cash down the back of the treasury sofa which he's saying oh we could spend it on tax cuts one problem with that is the debt's going to rise anyway. Another mm. problem with that is the whole idea that there's extra cash lying around is predicated on uh, all these efficiency cuts that they're going to make in, you know, education, Ministry of Justice. Good old efficiency cuts. All, all of that. So the figure is something of a mirage and the the former head of the OBR, he said it, it wasn't even a work of fiction because fiction is at least written down. Yeah, at least there's a story. They just haven't, <laughs> they've just left a gap. It has about 2025 onwards. Now, the polls show that given the choice between tax cuts and spending cuts, most voters would prefer to keep the spending, including a significant chunk of Tory voters, which should help uh, Labour uh, give the people what they want. But is that easier said than done? Well, all politicians are a bit nervous about this idea that people say in polls, oh, yeah, we'd be happy to pay a bit more tax uh, if we got the level of services we need for two reasons. One is that sometimes the idea of the country as a whole paying a bit more tax and the idea of me personally paying a bit more tax, people have quite different feelings. And then also, once you get into arguments over what that money is going to be spent on, suddenly people don't feel quite as comfortable paying more taxes for things that they personally disagree with. So there's that problem as well. But I think, really, it's about how much can you tax people can you improve public services with that extra money? If you can't, people will feel worse off and they won't feel like public services have improved. And I think Labour is quite worried about that, about people feeling like they're worse off and not seeing the benefits of where but that money can is politics going. Can, be that, can, can politics be that simple as the trap that the Tories have set, where they're like, we're going to cut taxes and now you're going to have to change your plans because you can't possibly raise the taxes back to where they were before? I think... It's fair to say that people don't like being told you're going to have to pay more taxes, especially when they already feel a lot worse off than they did a couple of years ago because of the cost of living crisis. The question is, can Labour make that argument? And I think given the state of public service at the moment, they probably can. Next up, commentator Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Hi, Dorian. Do you know that um, um, OBR thing was genuinely my scoop? 
Well done. So it doesn't happen <laughs> often. So I'm sort of celebrating. I didn't I, know that. I'm so sorry. No, 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 it's fine because I was working for Best for Britain. I was doing those socials yesterday and I was literally committee hopping in the afternoon. That's how sad I am. Uh, and he was saying some quite juicy stuff. So I started mm. taking clips and then it kind of blew up from there. So I was quite pleased. Donald Trump won the New Hampshire primate on Tuesday with 55% of the vote to Nikki Haley's 43. Haley has pledged to, to fight on, even though that was probably her best chance. Given that Trump has always been the front runner, is the real story not that he won, but that he didn't win by more? No. You don't think that? Go on, <laughs> no. Why not? Well, I mean, the real story is that Nikki Haley didn't win. She had thrown everything into that state. But she was a, never going to win. A lot of money, a lot of did appearances. You, did... Well, okay, put it this way. If she can't win there, she won't win anywhere. No, no, no. No, give, no, so, no I know that. But given that she won't win and given that she will drop out and given that he is going to win, which, drop out, which he though. was always going to win, but given that he was always going to win, don't you think that it's sort of striking that there is a significant number of people, I know that New Hampshire also yeah, involves... Yeah allows independent voters to vote, but that there was a significant opposition to Trump, the mm. sort of semi-incumbent presumptive nominee. Yes. I mean, I think what it does is it lays bare the strategy of the team behind Nikki Haley. And that was quite interesting to see and her vowing to fight on. Um, because I think the reason she is in this contest is not to give Trump a free ride. Because what it forces Trump to do is to constantly attack her in really quite demeaning and sexist ways. And that speaks to educated, affluent, suburban female voters, which is precisely the, the demographic that Trump needs to win, actually. So I suspect the agenda behind her is that there is a rump of the Republican Party that will not abandon it to Trump and want to make it clear that they won't abandon it to Trump and would rather Biden won, actually. Um, and I think that's the, the objective they're working towards. So for that, it's a really interesting thing. Um, Ron DeSantis dropped out for the primary. Did you enjoy his humiliation as much as I did? I don't think as much as you did, because I think you have a very personal relationship with Ron. Um, Just the most I did enjoy man. it. Yes. Just a terrible, terrible I politician. did enjoy it, but I suspect you enjoyed it a tad more. Uh, Marie Leconte is a columnist and author. Hello, Marie. Hello. Uh, Liz Truss is co-launching a new movement called Popular Conservatism, as opposed mm -hmm. to the current unpopular conservatism. And Trussite MP Simon Clark has caused a ruckus by calling on Sunak to resign to save the UK from the evils of Starmerism. <laughs> um, <laughs> as with so much that happens on the Tory right, I just have to ask, is this more than irrelevant nonsense? Oh, no, it is irrelevant nonsense. Um, although, so I did kind of enjoy, so there, there's a little website uh, launching PopCon because um, they're, they're doing some event in a couple of weeks. And they describe themselves as a new movement aiming to restore democratic accountability to Britain and deliver popular conservative policies. <laughs> and that means nothing. And Liz, that that and means Liz, nothing and at Liz all. Truss <laughs> is promising to deliver popular conservative policies. Perhaps she is an amnesiac. It, no, so I think it's one of those things I saw and then I paused. And I feel like in many ways, like my thing, you know, that's kind of how I built a career for myself. I'm quite funny on Twitter. That's my thing. And I saw that and I was like, there's nothing. There's nothing I can I possibly say, say yeah. that is funnier 
than list trials heading up popular yep. conservatism. And just quoting them. I think it's a bit like the thing with Rwanda, which is we're going to legislate that Rwanda is a safe mm. country. Rwanda is safe if we say it is. Conservatism is popular if we say it's popular. Like we just change the name and then everyone mm. loves us, right? It's quite, it's quite postmodern. That really just sort of, you know, the words that you use. The name is the concept. The name is the concept. <laughs> the map is the territory. You know, you just sort of say the thing and so it shall be. But I'm going to this launch, hopefully. I've, si- I've oh. signed up. They haven't said yes yet, so they might not want me. And I'm really interested in it because the four MPs that they have mm. on the on on the website, it's Liz Truss, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Simon Clark, who just called on Rishi Sunak to quit, and Ranul Jayawardena, who was also in Liz Truss's cabinet. And those two are part of the Conservative Growth Group, which is like the Trussite one of the five families. Um, uh, uh, and the idea that like... Rachel winced when she said five families, as she always does. <laughs> I, I was my New Year's resolution not to use the phrase, and now I am, and I'm sorry about it, but they're very closely associated with that part of it. So I looked at that and I was like, is one of the families splitting? Like the Venn diagram mm-hmm. of people is just a circle within a circle, which I think is kind of interesting because how many more fractures can you get mm. within the groups on the already fractured it's right that, of the party? I think they just love launching things. Like they weirdly like that kind of side of the Conservative Party reminds me of the house chair I lived in uh, at university because we always wanted to have parties and it kind of became the joke that we would find increasingly tenuous reasons to organise house parties. <laughs> we were like, Oh, no. At first it was like the end of term, then it was like, I think we, yeah, did we, I think we might have done one once for like someone finally got laid and we were like, come to our house to celebrate. It surprised me that you were salt burning your way from university. (laughs) And yeah, does that any excuse to organise stuff? And I feel like it's maybe that. They just really like attention. They're like, we're launching a new thing. We just want to do events. We love events. Well, I know we did a segment recently about like the sort of the delusions of the Tory sphere. Um, And there was another one today that the Telegraph had done a YouGov poll, and I'm not sure what the methodology was, but they had the map if Sunak runs against, Sunak is still in charge, very red. And then they had another map if Starmer (laughs) ran against somebody who believed in real conservative values. And that was almost entirely blue. It was like an absolute Tory landslide. Like it looked... Or, yeah, it was like sort of like Thatcher level. Mm. Not just it believed was... in them, it was someone who had managed to deliver right. yes. growth yeah. and stopped the boats. And, and brought down taxes <laughs> and brought down NHS waiting lists. And the thing that amazed me about that <laughs> was like that with this, what if it was Superman? With this magical leader, Labour still won like 150 seats. <laughs> yes, yeah, 136, I think. People were like, no, still no, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> we were rejecting the Man of Steel. <laughs> First this week, the Conservative Party, again, has been the preferred choice of the general public for well over a century, winning 19 out of the last 28 elections. Labour has only had six prime ministers in its lifetime, which is just one more than the Tories have had in the last decade. Uh, This has led to the myth that the country is essentially small-c conservative. As former Justice of the Supreme Court Jonathan Sumption once put it, we are a conservative country that sometimes votes Labour. But is that actually true, especially now the Tories are in a doom spiral and the public is becoming measurably more liberal? Two recent articles come to very different conclusions. An essentially conservative country is a powerful myth that warps English politics by Nazreen Malik in The Guardian and The Tory Art of War, How the Tories Defeated Labour in the Battle for Britain's Soul by Geoffrey Wheatcroft in The New Statesman. Marie, what does Nazreen Malik say? So her argument is essentially that the kind of widely known idea that Britain is a conservative country that occasionally votes Labour is not true at all. 
Um, and instead, so I think w- what she thinks is special about Britain is that it's a very unequal country, essentially. So it's got an elite that's able to really influence voters quite easily and an elite that obviously is by definition quite conservative um, and who manages, so I quote, to stamp conservatism on the national character. So it's mm. not the national mm. character that's inherently Tory or right wing, but, you know, it's kind of like those elites who do that. So one of the examples she gives is that uh, Brexit was mostly funded by five of the country's richest men, which is, to be fair, good point to make. Um, and, and then I guess her conclusion is that that status quo is not one Labour should seek to kind of reinforce every time they run for elections by trying to appeal to kind of like natural Tory voters on natural Tory turf. They should seek to kind of like remake the status quo. Otherwise, they end up becoming sort of like house sitters, I think she calls them, for whatever the next Conservative government mm, is going I, to be. I really liked her um, point that the current demonisation of the new elite is mm. a sort of a Conservative response to the fact that many institutions aren't in their pockets anymore. And I just thought, oh, is that why they're so angry about, say, like the National Trust? Is that it's easy to just go, oh, culture wars, if that just sort of explains mm. everything. And it was like, oh, actually, maybe, you know, it's important to them that they feel that they really have this huge institutional weight on their side to give that impression that, like, they're the governing people. But isn't the problem that I think on that they just didn't do the work? Because I think one thing Labour, like New Labour famously was very good at, was the kind of march with institutions and putting, you know, A, putting lots of people in kind of lots of key sort of semi-political appointments, but also I think naturally attracting the sort of people who would eventually become quite senior in all those places, whereas the Tories didn't really do that. I think maybe if Cameron had stayed, there's a version of the Conservative Party that could have stuffed all these institutions full of kind of centre-right Tories, maybe, like maybe. maybe. But, you know, obviously that didn't happen and they, they just did not do that at all. And I think they turned around at some point and they were like, hang on, but when Labour was in power, all their guys were all around them. Like, where are our guys? And it's a bit like, well, yeah, well, that would be because Labour thought about this and actually like, acted proactively. So I'm not entirely sure what I make of her thesis, or like, especially that that kind of point, because I think that the Tories are definitely angry about this, but I'm not sure it's necessarily because the country has changed entirely. Like, I think we could still see a world I, I in which read... in a decade there are lots of centre-right people running all those quangos, etc. I read a thing a couple of years ago, I think it was by Peter Auburn, and it was all about how because a sort of capitalist ideology basically idolizes earnings, Mm. the people who are naturally attracted to your party go for high-earning professions. They don't go into the arts and the Mm. charitable sector, and, and that this basically happens quite organically over time, that... Oh, no, I know who wrote that. Uh, and it's really annoying because it's someone I find quite irritating, but is occasionally entirely right. That was a Janan Ganesh okay. column in the FT. Oh, yes. But there's lots of reasons as well. I mean, I don't buy the one. I remember uh, you're familiar with the one where it just goes, well, more artists are, um, are left-leaning because they have more empathy and Tories <laughs> don't have enough empathy to write novels. Um, but there are like, there's lots of reasons why you just have a kind of, and I suppose we'll talk about this with BBC mm-hmm. as well later. I mean, there's lots of reasons why you know, different institutions and professions tend to attract mm. people who lean different ways. But I think, again, the money thing, that like, I completely agree with uh, with that. I, I even recently, I'm not, I'm not going to out them because they're otherwise a very nice person, but I was speaking, having a drink with a Tory friend recently who said, you know, and, and he's, again, I would say that very... A uh, pleasant person was saying, but obviously, you know, in London, like you just can't live in London these days if you're not earning at, at the very least 60K. And it's like, what? 
So you're never going to go into the yards or into mm. those jobs or actually, even if you do incredibly well, you will probably end up on like 45K. You'll and have that's where it's going to zero K. No, exactly. So, so I do think there's a cultural thing there as well, and especially as life becomes more expensive. Mm. Oh, God. Okay, this is maybe my hot take of the day. I think the cost of living crisis is making institutions more left wing because Tories are becoming even less likely to join those jobs that are poorly paid. Um, Rachel, so I read the Jeffrey Wheatcroft piece in uh, the New Statesman. Um, I love the chance to to promote my own publication. Thank well, you so much for. But then the also, I was kind of just googling him because uh, I was like, oh, well, you know, what else has he done? And in two thousand five, he published a book called "The Strange Death of Tory England," which concluded conservatives have sat around for some years saying to themselves they will get back one day, but there is no necessary reason why this should be. So, no law of history says that any political party has to survive. But in this piece which goes back to the 19th century uh, to the present day, he concludes, we need to acknowledge the underlying ultimate triumph of the right. Yes. Now, presumably the right had not triumphed in 2005. How do you read his argument? So um, I haven't read his book, for a start, mm. um, but I read the the article and I think that he's making a slightly different case to the Jonathan Sumption one, which is that we're a naturally conservative country and what he's actually doing, and I would say, like, go go, go read it because it's really interesting, mm. um, if you're interested in sort of political history of the, of the UK, is looking at how the Conservative Party adapted really from the turn of the 19th, 20th century for the next 100 years. And all the instances where the country was changing and the Conservative Party managed to get out ahead of it and really ride the wave of that change. And he points out that, I didn't know this, Neville Chamberlain, usually uh, regarded as somewhat a failure uh, because of the whole, you know, Hitler stuff, uh, but was actually a great reformer. He's one Nazi. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A great reformer when it came to house building, when it came to laying the groundwork for healthcare and local governments. Obviously, the NHS was a huge labour project, but they didn't try and undo it. It was accepted. And one of the things he kind of says is that started happening a bit less towards the end of that period. But I've kind of seen traces of it within the current Conservative Party. And a big one, I think, is childcare, which has been in the news a lot this week because the government's expansion of the provision of free childcare to two-year-olds is meant to come into force in April. They haven't done enough work for it. The nurseries are all saying, we don't have the staff, we don't have the resources. Parents are signing up and they don't know what childcare they're going to get, et cetera, et cetera. Why did they announce that they were going to introduce it that quickly last year? It's because that was going to be Labour's flagship policy. That was going to be Bridget Phillipson's massive offering mm. to the country. One of my colleagues did an interview with her a couple of months before that Tory decision. And she was like, there was nothing from the Tories at that point. And I think they anticipated, oh yeah, childcare is like a massive electoral issue that hasn't been talked about. Let's try and get out ahead of it. And I think historically, Labour hasn't been that canny or that adaptable. So, so part of his argument is that it's, it's if you just go, oh, well, you know, England is naturally, and I think you have to say England, because I think if you say that Scotland was naturally conservative, it's, they will kill it's you. It's notable that on that map um, that we were talking about that went yeah, yeah. completely blue, they didn't bother to put didn't Scotland bother on the map. Scotland, they, um, but, you know, that, that it's not so much that they're just simply conservative, but the conservatism keeps sort of changing its parameters and absorbing different things. And it's actually a flexibility, a flexibility which... You know, I do sense less of, despite what you're saying there about childcare. I do sense that certainly the optics do not suggest a kind of flexibility and meeting yeah. the nation where it is or where it's going to go. Alex, 
We talked, um, I'm sure if you were in the episode, but we talked a few months back when they released the Social Attitudes survey, and that was very interesting. And there's another one that you've picked up on this week. What do these surveys tell us about changing attitudes in the UK? So um, there was a YouGov poll last week um, that had quite a striking sort of Labour lead. It was Labour on 47, Conservatives on 20, Reform on 12, Liberal Democrats 8, Green 7. And Sam Friedman sort of went under the bonnet a little bit and looked at the um, stats by age. And he tweeted this very eye-catching thing, loads of caveats, obviously, that if you just look at people under 50, then the, the percentages would be Labour 60%, Conservatives 10, Green 10, Reform 5. Okay. So even adding Conservatives and Reform would only yield 15% in under 50s. I mean, we're not talking about a massively young sample. No, we're that's... just saying... If you just look at people that, under 50... That age tipping point has just got later and later, yeah. hasn't it, where you're meant to become more conservative. Yes, and, and I was reminded, actually, of a recent origin story that I found very educational... Good in, podcast. ...in terms of untangling the age period and cohort effects. Mm, I think you were mm, talking about generations, yeah, 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 weren't yeah. you? And this looks like a cohort effect. It looks like the third thing, right? Because... Um, because you see it in the states as well. Boils down to this: traditionally, the thirty-five-year year old version of a person would be about five percent less conservative than the average. Okay, and by the time they were seventy, they would be about five percent more conservative than the average. But for people born in the eighties and nineties, let's call them millennials. I know you have you find that problematic, but let's use that shorthand. Um, the opposite is happening. So not only are they the most left-leaning of any generation, on average 15% less conservatives than any of their predecessors, but they're moving in the opposite direction, becoming, in effect, more progressive as they age. And it is happening in several countries, including the US. And the New Economics Foundation did some work on this and found that, as a matter of fact, the gap is widening too. That there is evidence that this woke moral panic that we we will be talking about more in, in the coming segments is making people over a particular age even more conservative right. and people under a particular age even right. less conservative because they're like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? But a lot of this also <laughs> has happened quite quickly in the Social Attitudes Survey. You saw like a real, yeah. uptick after 2019, there was definitely like a lot of evidence that people were moving to the left hmm. on sort of social issues. The way I see it is this, like there's two things. One was austerity, which I thought proved to me that Jonathan Sumption argument, right? That the kitchen table argument worked and Labour mm. lost the argument on austerity. Um, and it was, that was just a disaster for everyone. And, but it seemed to work. It seemed to basically just go, you appeal to that, you know, f fiscal conservatism. And that is so much more powerful. Yeah than any sort of like Keynesian sort of argument. And I think people have seen the consequences of that and are far less uh, amenable to that and thinking, actually, maybe it's a really bad idea if you gut public services and now you can't yeah. get a you know, GP and childcare and so on. And the other thing is, is like Brexit, which was a different, coming from a different sort of side of conservatism, but was a huge promise 
that failed and was also very, very divisive. And so, of course, that's pushed a lot of people, but Moraine is sort of further to the left. So I feel like, okay, I kind of get why that's happened in retrospect, but I would not have predicted it. So I think Brexit is actually really interesting. I'm going to bring up Marie's favourite person, John Oxley, here. Um, he uh, you should get on the podcast, as I've said, everyone's favourite you know, conservative who hates the conservatives. But uh, he's written a piece recently about uh, if you take Brexit out of the equation, the conservatives have been declining for decades, that they never really recovered from 97. In right. fact, uh, Cameron's victory in t- 2015 was a worse result than in 1992. Right. And uh, obviously, Boris Johnson won a landslide in 2019 with an election that was predominantly about Brexit. And one of the reasons the party is in freefall at the moment is Brexit's happened. They're trying to find the next Brexit. Is it going to be illegal immigration in Rwanda? Is it going to be the uh, ECHR? Is it going to be culture war stuff? Mm. And they're desperately clawing at something to replace Brexit as the draw because that decline has been underway for a a long time. And I thought that was interesting because that's not the narrative that we hear. The narrative Mm. that we hear is that the Conservatives are basically unstoppable unless Labour do something amazing. But there had to be a reason, I think, why 2019 was not what everybody thought it was Mm. and how that collapsed. I think I I buy that. There's a Wall Street Journal analysis of the general social survey study of the US, which is their equivalent of our social attitude survey. Um, And very interesting, it suggests Gen Z is going exactly the same way and even more so. Mm. So they're saying this is not a blip. To me, there's a very simple and basic point, which the onward think tank, which is a sort of uh, conservative uh, one nation think tank has cottoned on to, that um, capitalism is about capital. And Mm. if you have a country where basically a whole segment of people cannot get hold of capital, cannot own a house, cannot make savings, Mm. then you ain't going to get a capitalist country. Rachel, does Starmer get this, do you think? I thought it was interesting that that the idea that you sort of meet the public where they are, which seems very sort of intuitive. um, But, you know, during the Thatcher years, 1987, Stuart Hall, as quoted in the Nesri Malik piece, said politics does not reflect majorities, it constructs them. You know, the, the, the Thatcher did move the country to the right. She didn't just think, oh, everyone's getting more right wing. I better get on that. Does Labour also believe that it can challenge orthodoxies, change assumptions, really sort of move the centre? Or is it so traumatised by its defeats that it that it, it, can't, it, can't, it can't sort of believe that? I think there's a sense in which Starmer's trying to do that. One of the ways in which Thatcher changed the consensus is an entire generation of people brought their council homes and were conservative voters for life. And if Labour go ahead with the plans that they have proposed, which is a mass house building programme, a whole set of new towns, then a, a generation of people will get to buy homes who wouldn't have done and will remember that it was a Labour government who did that for them. So it's partly that. I think You've got to bring in the fact as well that the age point is really interesting, but fundamentally there are currently at least more older voters. Like those generations are bigger and they are more likely to vote. And therefore you can say, look at how left-wing 18-year-olds are now. There are fewer 18-year-olds. They're concentrated in areas that are less useful for Labour and they're less likely to vote. So it's a mixture of both. I think conservatism is about conserving the status quo and that can change and one of the reasons the conservatives have been adaptable is they have 
looked at the new things that people want to conserve and say, oh yeah, we're going to conserve that. And if they can do that again, if they can kind of recognise where the country is now, they would be able to recover. They're in a bit of a death spiral at the moment. It's been said many times before, obviously, that Brexit was not, didn't seem to be conserving anything. And I think that that did like more instinctive conservatives like like my mum, who's sort of moderate, but really quite consistently mm. uh, conservative. Um, they just thought, well, you just seem to be like fucking shit up. Mm. You know, like the, that, that sort yeah. of revolutionary side of co- the Conservative Party does not appeal to people who are quite yeah. small C conservative because mm-hmm. they're like, well, why do, you, why do you break that? It's really interesting how Brexit became the purity test in the Conservative Party, which it wasn't. I think it was an internal debate that Conservative MPs liked to have with each other that then blew up and and ended up being a debate that we all have to have for the next however many decades. It gave them that victory in 2019, but it has also made the party uncertain about what it stands for Mm. now. Mm. Um, Marie, the new Labour years did not ultimately kill the Tories' image as the natural party of government, as, you know, Geoffrey Wheatcroft wondered in in 2005. Mm. Could it be different this time? And I don't mean, I'm not talking about will the Tory party be wiped out, will it ever come back? But Mm. uh, something maybe not as extreme as that, but Mm. just sort of to break the idea that, you know, that Labour are always the house it is. I think maybe, but then, you know, and I feel like um, I'm influenced by the fact that I've been working on different piece this afternoon on uh, on actually the backlash to feminism in lots of Western societies, including Britain, where actually, according to a survey mm. did, I believe, last year, 18 to 34-year-old men were by some distance way more likely than men of any other age to think that feminism had gone too far and men were being asked to do too much. And it was a bit like, oh, okay, that is not data I was expecting and that's mm. incredibly depressing and that's, you know, very kind of typical social conservatism. So I'm not... You know, I I am also quite pessimistic because I'm not convinced that Keir Starmer is the man to actually arrive and go against the grain, decide to, you know, take the uneasy decisions, etc., and do the risky things. I think I could still quite easily see busy the Tories obviously having a, a, a period of time of going completely sort of like balls to the wall insane in opposition. Coming up next. Um, and, <laughs> and then, you know, and, and then briefly, actually, if, if they do end up getting themselves back together to a kind of like broadly centre-right kind of like friendly, cuddly conservatism, they'd probably win. Yeah, they'd probably win again. I don't know, I, I'm quite, yeah, cynical on that. Can but... I share a quote I came across in, in Origin Story research um, about Labour, which I thought this is essential. I didn't realise that this had always been the case mm. uh, and its relationship to to the country. Uh, it's 1936 when Stanley Baldwin was the Tory PM. And Keynes said, I should officially join the Labour Party if it did not seem to be divided between enthusiasts who turn against anything if there seems a chance that it could possibly happen mm-hmm. and leaders so conservative that there is more to hope for Mr Baldwin. And I was like, oh, still, mm. yeah. still true. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> still true. Now it's time for a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. Remember, back us on Patreon and you could ask your question too. This week, the mysterious Louise says, The 15-year rule was finally lifted last week, meaning that UK expats can register to vote. Does the panel think this will influence election tactics or outcomes in any way? Um, Alex? I mean, I welcome any extension of the franchise at a basic level, but, 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 but... Um, we've been doing a little bit of work on this uh, at Best for Britain, and it affects donation rules. Um, it really makes the system much more vulnerable to foreign money. Mm. And 
expanding the remote franchise also seems to me at odds with the voter ID stuff mm, going yes. on here, right. where nurses are being turned away at polling stations because their NHS photo ID is not good enough. Mm. But someone in, you know, Austria can just sign a declaration mm. that I am who I say I am. Yeah. So, yes, I welcome it, but it does set, I think, a lot of other stuff going on in quite stark contrast. Marie? I, I, I think it will be really interesting, actually. I'm not, I'm not convinced that the numbers are gr so great that, um, that, that, you know, like an election result could change entirely. But, but I'm quite curious to see how people vote, especially because I would imagine that an, a number of uh, British people who live abroad are perhaps not thrilled by Brexit having happened, especially the number of people mm. uh, living in the EU. Um, but then there's a, what I find quite weird, obviously, because as, as a French citizen abroad, I actually have an MP, like that there is an MP for people. Well, there are several MPs, mm. I believe, for French people, French citizens living in different countries. And he comes to hang out sometimes, does his little public meetings in London. Um, and obviously, you know, and as a result, I, I can vote in all French elections. So I do I do find this new British system quite weird of letting people vote. Uh, and I believe it's in the last constituency they lived in when they were in Britain, but not giving them formal representation. I, I, yeah, I find it odd. I, I find that bit odd as well. Uh, we used to have MPs for university towns mm. here, which I totally think we should bring back. It would reflect the country better if people of that age had representation in, in that way. Um, and one of the reasons why we don't allow prisoner voting here some people have a moral reason against it i would say that if you're going to be released then you have a stake in society and we should let them vote but the practical reason is that would radically affect the makeup of the electorate in constituencies that have big prison populations and there's this idea that that kind of wouldn't be fair and so you're kind of getting the reverse mm. of that here and i have seen concerns that people could register and the, like pick a constituency that they had yeah. lived in in the past mm. that was a more marginal one and therefore increase their voting power that way. I just think that it probably is the Conservatives thinking that, I mean, let's face it, they wouldn't be doing it if they thought it would disadvantage them. Mm. Um, but you had Jacob Rees-Mogg after those local mm. elections saying when you try and gerrymander, and he used that word, mm. when you try and gerrymander, it backfires. And I think Marie is right that the Conservatives may find that there are more of these expat voters who are living in Europe and are really upset of what's been going on there. Next on today's show, the Tory party has tried a lot of different leaders of late and nothing seems to be working. Oh, no. But there is a name that keeps cropping up as a route to a glorious comeback, and that's Business and Trade <laughs> Secretary Kemi Badnock. It's called Empathy. <laughs> She is popular amongst the Tory party members. Last New Year's Eve, she topped a Conservative poll well ahead of Penny Mordaunt and Suella Braverman, and the bookies have had her as the favourite since June. Badenock has created an image for herself as a woke-bashing culture warrior, but she's also stood up to the Tory right in her day job. So what are her leadership chances and what would Badenockism, not a real word, look like? <laughs> Rachel, you recently wrote a long piece in the New Statesman, them again, headlined, <laughs> How Kemi Badenock Became the Tory Frontrunner. Um, it's well worth reading. Um, tell us how, briefly. What I think is interesting about Kemi Badenock is she is trying to run as the candidate of the right of the party and the centre of the party. Mm. And usually what happens in Conservative leadership elections, MPs vote for the candidates, they whittle it down to two, those two get put to the membership 
almost inevitably the right wing one wins because the membership is more right wing than the MPs are. Uh, but usually the two candidates, there's one from the One Nation moderate group mm. and there's one from the right, mm. whatever group is in ascendance on the right. And Kerry Badenoch is really positioning herself as somebody who has very strong right wing credentials. And I'll talk about what, what those are in a minute, but who is not insane, basically. Well, she's like friends with Tom Tugendhat. She's friends with Tom Tugendhat, yeah. uh, who um, she thinks if he doesn't run uh, himself, he might actually even endorse her. Mm. She's got other friends in the moderate wing of the party. You've got to remember that in this new vibes-based conservative party, Rishi Sunak, even though he is a Thatcherite, is kind of classed as a centrist or moderate because he's not Liz Truss, I guess. And so anyone serving in his cabinet is kind of associated with him. And so she kind of gets legitimacy through that. Uh, And she is positioning herself as not Suella Braverman, basically. On the right, uh, she obviously very Brexity, um, but she has kind of kept herself out of the latest purity test, which is sending people to Rwanda. And she is trying to keep her, I'm very, very Brexity, but I'm also very pragmatic. And therefore, you in the centre can feel safe with there, me. There was, a, there was a leaked story about how she'd actually said to Sunak privately that the Rwanda bill was not tough enough, but then she wasn't like a rebel. So is that an example of it. So it's sort of like she wants people to, some people to know, to know. Yeah. that mm. she's sort of tough, but she doesn't want to make a big deal out of it. It's exactly that. So that story came out just before the vote on the third reading of the Rwanda bill. It didn't come out when it allegedly actually happened, mm. which was on the second reading, mm-hmm. where she stayed completely quiet. Mm. Actually, what she was doing was talking, uh, very taking a very, very tough line on gender ideology on trans rights, her opposition to them, uh, on culture war stuff, because she's also equalities minister. Mm. And so she was really making, she she made the headlines in the front page of the, the Telegraph and the Mail and these glowing write-ups for that at exactly the time when Robert Jenrick was resigning because the Rwanda mm. bill wasn't tough enough for him. So she managed to dodge that debate that was one right-wing purity test by kind of leaning into another. Now, she's not big enough to merit a biography quite yet. And um, so answers the question, why is she like this? What is interesting in her in her backstory? So she was born in Britain, but she grew up uh, for a lot of her life in Nigeria. Uh, her parents are of Nigerian origin. And she said that she is, for all intents and purposes, a first-generation immigrant, even though she is British. Her maiden speech in Parliament, she talked about the experience growing up in Nigeria and how it made her a conservative, uh, a fan of like capitalism and sort of gave her a deep distrust of the state because she said, I saw real poverty, I experienced it, living without electricity and doing my ca- my homework by candlelight because the state electricity board could not provide power, fetching water from a mile away because the nationalised water co- company could not get water out of the taps. So she has a kind of backstory that is quite different to the way a lot of other right-wing Tory MPs come to those views. And for people who hold those views, is really quite inspiring. One wants to respond like, other states are available. <laughs> but, but, but I, I think, get what you mean. That stuff does shape a, you. Like like, ex-com- yeah. like the way that some very right-wing people grew up in the Eastern Bloc. Yeah. And they were just like, well, fuck anything to do with the left. And mm. I think it's a, it's a compelling backstory in another way because it sort of speaks to 
the British immigrant experience um, and finding being very proud to be British because you experience something else. And it also differentiates her very clearly from the posh boys who all went to Eton, who have generations of conservative politicians in their history. So that's another reason why she's seen as quite interesting. You also say in the piece that an ally suggested that as a black woman, she can speak against the woke agenda with more authority. Yes. So is that, she would not make that explicit, but how important is that? Would she make that explicit? Um, As a black woman, she can talk about the evils of critical race theory as she sees it in a way that if a white conservative politician did it, they would get criticised a lot more. And I spoke to a lot of people who've worked with her over the course of her career and they kind of say, no, she genuinely does believe this stuff. It's not that the Conservative Party is putting all of their anti-woke beliefs in her because she happens to be a black woman. Um, But it does make it harder for white Labour MPs to challenge her because that's her lived experience. Mm. Although Braverman, I wonder whether she's sort of slightly proven otherwise and that you can, in fact, accuse somebody like that of racism. But Mm. Marie? Um, No, I just wanted to come in on the topic of woke stuff uh, because one of my favourite quotes ever, I think, is from an interview of her from 2018. Uh, Now, I'm just going to read this out and I'm going to challenge you to pass it and understand what point she's trying to make. In the papers, they were talking about how Friends is now sort of really homophobic, transphobic and so on. That, for me, is actually a puritanical position, which I think of as conservative. So you can't really put your finger on what's what these days. What does that mean? (laughs) Makes you... Makes you think. I think isn't it the basic, so it, it's conser- isn't it the, like liberals are the real authoritarians. Yeah. That so liberals are thing. conservatives, which is bad. Conservatism is bad, except it, no, yeah. but also it's good. And I, I remember really distinctly reading that piece back in 2018 and going, "Am I having a stroke? Like, is this yeah. a me problem or an interview problem?" So does she so, like Friends or not? I but can't no, 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 no. It, it's really hard. And I reread it. She especially times. likes the transphobic. Yes, yeah, those are the best <laughs> jokes. The gay panic stuff mm. yeah. she loves those yeah only bits she laughs at actually yeah, yeah. <laughs> the rest of it she's like stony face they're trying to move the sofa up the stairs she's like I don't see what's funny <laughs> um, so it's like sidebar Alex um, Starmer took aim at that Tory tendency which Bednock uh, not single handedly um, but loudly represents um, in a speech this week they alluded to the culture wars they said they seem set on sabotaging civil society to save their own skins now he's previously steered clear of, of this territory um, in a way that's maddened quite a lot of people in Labour. How do you think uh, he played it this time? I think he played it well. Um, I, I, do, I don't subscribe to the school of thought that thinks oh, we should stay out of that kind of stuff. Um, I was looking at a, a social attitude survey list of the most trusted institutions in Britain today, and top is the NHS with 78%, and second is the National Trust with 71%. And, you know, there's... Then you have the military schools, charities, universities, the courts. The podcast I got um, one now. But but do, do you know what I mean? And it's all the stuff that the Tories are attacking at the moment. So I th- I think he's tapping into something quite real. There there was an aspect of the recent um, um, Redfield Wilton poll where they looked at the question: Who do British voters believe can bring British people together? And it was quite a big gap between Starmer and Sunak in favour of Starmer. And and to me, what he was saying is we just need to stop going on about 
this stuff. We just mm. need to stop attacking stuff that is actually quite valuable and that we most people like. But I think he could. I mean, this is a safer territory. I think he could go a bit further because I know that, that Biden is actually very good at calling out the sort mm. of the cruelty of the right. And it seems both morally sound and strategically effective and that there's stuff that he will come out and say, I am in favour of this and I think that these people are being cruel and bigoted, that Starmer just would not say. No. Mm. And I, I have moved from thinking most people don't care about this stuff so you don't really need to talk about it to sort of feeling, well, actually, you mm. can't just keep not responding. Okay, but, okay, let me... Be devil's advocate. I also feel, however, we need to stop constantly second guessing the nows and team around someone who has gone in three years from twenty points behind. Oh, no, I don't really want to make this. Points, I don't want to make this no, about no, Starmer. I'm just, I'm no, just but, saying, like, I'm, where culture war might not be, might be something that you know that some of this stuff that you actually at some point have to just say where your values are. Yes. If we have a Tory leader, mm. and this is where I want to come back to Rachel, whether actually yes, if we get she the thinks that that will be Trump, the case. Then, then he has to become more Biden-esque. I agree with that completely if that becomes the central sort of point. But Rachel, even though that's been a big part of her kind of pitch, and you say that she is actually very sincere on some of this stuff, whether that be, you know, gender or critical, you know, critical race, race theory. theory, you know, like some this quite kind of like sometimes quite crankish mm. stuff. Do you think that that will be a big part of the party if she uh, does become the next leader? So I think it all depends on what the Conservative Party looks like after the defeat. We think they are going to lose quite heavily and there is a lot of uncertainty about which MPs, which seats will remain. Are they going to lose the seats in the Red Wall? Are they going to leave, leave Southern seats to the Lib Dems? That is going to shape what the Conservative Party after that looks like. And I think that she could do either. If the party wanted to go really, really hard on culture wars, then she is very strong on that. Mm. If, however, it's the old school one nation ones who remain, the word that kept coming up when I spoke to people who work closely with her, two words, pragmatic and nuanced, yeah, yeah, which I are noticed. not words no. that you hear about her very often. But they, they, they said, like, she is somebody who will sit down look at the evidence, open to having her mind changed if it looks like that's the best course of action. And I think that is the kind of leader she would be. She would look at what the party was and take her steer from that. But part of the triangulation is putting her in a position where she could do either. That's interesting. Um, so Maria, I want to come to, the to I suppose, the perception of her and what she's like as a public-facing politician, because I was very surprised by some of those words, like nuance, for example. Yeah. I tend to get condescension and contempt from her, mm. not personally, um, but when she's sort of speaking. Um, but that isn't necessarily, it didn't sort of do, do Thatcher any harm. But she also seems quite sort of tetchy. And a lot of the strengths that, you know, her allies say that she has mm. don't seem to come across to me. What do you make of her as a, as a, as a politician and somebody who, if she was leader, would be facing the country, maybe mm. contesting the next election, although I wouldn't. Mm. wouldn't bank on it, you know. Um, I think her problem is that she doesn't care for a lot of people and she uh, does not mind when it shows. <laughs> so, for example, she sincerely just does not like journalists, does not see the point of talking to journalists or engaging with the vast majority of journalists, which, again, she's not the first politician to have that approach. But the problem is, again, she does not hide it at all. Mm. She just has complete and utter contempt for most of the media, which, again, that's not, you know, if you're a Secretary of State, especially in the kind of uh, brief that she has at the moment, that's not quite career ending. 
I think leading the opposition, your entire job is just to talk to people yeah. and try and make yourself heard and make friends. And that's not something well, she's very good at. You have here on your desk a, a leaflet from Karen Bednock with a letter from one of her constituents who says that, like, she's not great. Like, her replies <laughs> to constituents seem a little bit, like, a, a, a rather mm. brusque. And they are the only time they've ever written to, uh, you mm. know, a politician was, I think, in 94 about the criminal justice bill. And I wrote to Tony Blair when he was shadow home secretary. And I got like, you know, essentially the message was like, tough shit, mate. Mm. But it yeah. was thoughtful, you know, and it was signed. And I thought, do you know what? Like, he obviously didn't agree, but he, he's actually like responded. I wasn't even a constituent, obviously, mm. uh, you know, writing to him in his you were just shadow role. <laughs> I was just like an annoying mm. raver. Um, <laughs> complaining about the criminal justice bill and uh, this letter from a listener, you know, just sort of quoted uh, very much like two-line reply. It was just like, yeah, yeah, thanks for mm. thanks for getting in touch. Can I, can I just say that I have written to my MP at various points right. in my life to deal with not like big criminal justice right. things, but kind of local issues. And the worst reply I ever got was from Jeremy Corbyn's office and went basically, Jeremy's far too busy to deal with you. Um, <laughs> wow, so I just yeah. want to throw that out there, that it's not a party thing. No, no, no. But I wonder whether it's an individual thing, that, as well as not liking journalists and, and some other MPs, does she project to the public um, something uh, appealing, which is not, it's an obstacle to becoming Tory leader or indeed prime minister. Um but it might be an obstacle to somebody trying to get their party out of opposition. Can I ask something quick related? Mm. Because obviously you two have done a lot of work on, on her. Real chemi heads, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so you hear this story repeated quite a lot that mm. the reason you get this difference between her day-to-day -day reaction, you know, mm. and the more strategic stuff is that she's effectively still executing the tail end of Michael Gove's strategy for becoming leader, but because they've had a falling out, she doesn't have access to his advice, his sort of political oh, the experience. Mm, the falling out is, hmm. So, because, you know, there was that big story in the Times saying, oh, you know, there, there's a big rift because Michael was perhaps, you know, got a bit too close to one of Kemi's friends. Yeah. So that's a story, that's a bit of, bit of gossip that's been doing the rounds in Westminster for weeks and weeks and weeks. Why did that get in the Times out of nowhere? So we kind of think it was briefed out by Team Kemi because Michael Gove, especially as Rachel was saying earlier, if you want to appeal to the right of the party, that's not a route that takes you via Michael Gove right. anymore. Like maybe it could have at some mm. point, not anymore. So that story was briefed out as a way to say, no, we're not, she's very much her own woman. Like she, Yeah, I would, I would second that entirely. People I spoke to who were close to her, when I mentioned Michael Gove, they went, oh, that was all overhyped. Like he gave her a bit of advice on the first campaign, very keen to downplay it. Uh, I heard uh, something else as well, which is that Michael Gove possibly lost faith in her or thought that she was less impressive than she at first seemed. I don't know if that's true or not. That's certainly something that people who don't like her are saying. Mm -hmm. And the two criticisms of her that you hear a lot from people who don't like her are the one about being rude, abrasive, not making an effort with people, mm. um, being introverted, as someone diplomatically <laughs> put it. Not a, not a natural networker. Um, and then the other one is her being lazy. I heard very different accounts, people mm. in the civil service, some saying she's one of the most you know, on it, dedicated, committed uh, ministers we've ever had. And some people saying she doesn't read her briefs and she doesn't care about the issue. She doesn't care about it. And I imagine there's probably a bit of both in that she's very, very on it with the stuff that she cares about. And she's got a massive brief as well, like mm. business yeah, yeah. and yeah, trade and equality. Yeah. So some stuff slips. Uh, so, but certainly she isn't comfortable 
speaking to people. And it's actually quite interesting that she's managed to become the front runner, lacking that quite core. Cool I skill. love the euphemisms. Like if if somebody saying talking about a friend and when they're not a natural networker, you'd think, Fuck oh, my favorite must be horrible. My favorite one was not one to go into the commons tea rooms and charm people. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I mean that is just brutal. And that was by an ally. Oh, um, God. So I really recommend to listeners uh, Rachel's piece, Thank which uh, helped me uh, really sort of understand mm. her a lot better. Not Rachel, very very not. It's the end of the show, so it's time uh, quickly for the stories that went under the radar this week. Uh, Alex. Um, So, uh, Chris Heaton-Harris, the Northern Ireland Secretary, as we speak, actually, um, it's being discussed and debated in in Parliament. It's one of those expedited through all its stages in one afternoon things to extend the deadline for assembly elections in Northern Ireland to the February the 8th which would seem to me to indicate that they must be very close to coming to a deal mm. for power sharing. Mm. Otherwise, it would be just mm. massively embarrassing if you had to go <laughs> there on February 7th and say, can Whoops. we do another week? Can <laughs> we do one more? Okay. So so I think they're very. we're very close to seeing, seeing Stormont mm. um, oh. restored. Yay. That's good. Um, Marie. Uh, I'm going to hop over the channel uh, and talk about the massive farmers' protests in France uh, going on at the moment, which I've not seen lots of in the uh, British papers. Their thing at the moment is that they want the government to cut red tape and taxes um, and also ensure better prices for produce. Um, but th- they do seem like really, really apoplectic. And, and it kind of is a massive headache, I think, for Gabriel Attal, who has been prime minister for about seven minutes. <laughs> right. Um, and is he yeah, the really, now really young one? Yeah, 34. Yeah. Uh, no, I know. Sense. Yeah, no, no. We, I, I realized at some point because I realized it's off topic. Uh, we definitely had some mutual friends in high school because he went to a high school I had friends in. It was like, oh no, uh, Bernice, and he he spoke to the unions, and that did not get him anywhere at all. Um, and yeah, and I think like things actually took a tragic turn uh, earlier this week when uh, a woman died in southern France after a car hit a roadblock uh, that was set up by farmers. So there are Ooh. roadblocks currently all around uh, all around France. And yeah, no, so it's uh, things are not going tremendously. Is it politically weird in the way that the uh, Gilets Jaunes sort of turned out at first it was just like the workers are unhappy and then it turned out that there were loads of kind of like far right elements and conspiracy mm. theorists and so on. Is it like that or is it is it is it a more trad farmers want a better deal for farmers at the moment is just farmers want a better deal for farmers but let's see what happens because right. i would mm, say that yeah. that has actually es- escalated very dramatically and very quickly so rachel i've got some good news uh, and this was covered but i don't think it was covered as much as it should be which is that there were no cases of cervical cancer uh, in scotland among uh, women who had had the vaccination when they were 12 or 13. So the vaccination wow. uh, launched in 2008, and I remember it. Uh, I got it, I was 17. But the argument was uh, HPV is a sexually transmitted infection. It can cause cervical cancer. Cervical cancer is the biggest uh, form of cancer, most common form of cancer in young women, 25 to 35. If you can vaccinate them against this form of HPV before they're sexually active, before they have the chance to contract it, you can stop them getting cervical cancer and you can save lives. And there was a huge amount of controversy about giving it to girls who were 12 because, oh, you're encouraging sexual behaviour in 12-year-olds. And the whole point is you have to give it before somebody is sexually active for it to be effective. I just think it's incredible that in 15 years, we've wiped out, essentially, we've worked out how to wipe out the most common form of cancer in young women. and 
we should be talking about it Hurrah. constantly. This mm. is a banging under the radar. Um, mine is a is a kind of follow-on for the New Hampshire primary because everybody's been talking about Donald Trump because it, there's the, the appearance of a race, even though, as I've said, it, it's never really been a race. Um, and then Biden, where there are a couple of people running against him, but not significantly. It's just sort of not even mentioned. And there's a weirdness around the New Hampshire primary where the Democrats decided they didn't want to start the season there. Unfortunately, it's in written into the New Hampshire state law that they must have the first primary. This is a real dick move on whoever wrote that. So as a result, they're kind of isn't enough. The Democrats weren't officially engaged Running in the New Hampshire primary. Yeah. So it had to be like a, a write-in. So it's a big writing campaign. So it's like, but Biden's name was not on the ballot. And the results were, if you compare to um, other Democratic incumbents running again, that Bill Clinton in 96 got about 90,000 votes the regular way. Obama in 2012 got 60,000 the regular way. Um, Biden just got through a write-in 110,000, which does suggest that there's actually tremendous enthusiasm or at least tremendous like sort of, you know, ground game getting people going. And I do think that the under, I get very frustrated with a lot of the reporting because I think, particularly in Britain, people are just like mesmerized by Trump, like he's a boa constrictor. I'm always talking about, oh, the unprecedented achievements of Trump and, oh, Biden looking very weak. And I feel like consistently underreported is the fact that at this point, now that people know that it's going to be Biden versus Trump, there is huge energy in the Democratic base around issues, I think, as we discussed before, about abortion, and that's becoming a really galvanizing issue. And I, I really feel that, without making any predictions, I feel that Biden is actually much stronger than the, the news is suggesting. He's underpriced. And Trump, sure. is, Trump is much weaker. And I think I just I genuinely felt like listening to some report. I was like, this is genuinely like under the radar, I as agree. in you're not mm. mentioning yeah. it at all because you're so obsessed with Trump. So there we are. Thanks to Rachel Cunliffe. Thank you. Alex Andreu. My pleasure. And Marie Leconte. Thank you. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our supporters. You could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots, lots more. Search Oh God, What Now Patreon. We'll see you next time. A big shout out from us and the whole Oh God, What Now team to James Middleton, Ben, and returning Lapse Patron of the Week, Andrew Moriarty. And hello and many thanks for supporting us in these trying times to Chris Green, Sam and Big Tin Bot. A big hello from me and welcome aboard to Janet Howarth, Mario and Chris, a.k.a. Split Sunset. And finally, thanks to Filibuster, Cara, Andy Coulson. Maybe that Andy Coulson. <laughs> um, and I'd also like to thank uh, Lister Will Morgan, who sent in the letter about Kemi Badenoch. We will see you next time. Oh God, what now? was written and presented by Dorian Linsky with Rachel Cunliffe, Marie Leconte and Alexandre. The producer was Chris Jones. Socials by Jess Harpin and Kieran Leslie. Audio production is from me, Robin Lieburn. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. And oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit for Patreon backers. Culture Secretary Lucy Fraser wants to give Ofcom new powers to regulate perceived BBC bias, specifically on its news website. When pushed for an example of bias by Kay Burley on Sky News, she struggled but did eventually cite the BBC's coverage of Gaza. Transport Minister Hugh Merriman, however, could only come up with the news quiz, a satirical game show. 
on the basis that he didn't find it funny. <laughs> Doesn't mean that it's not a satirical game show. <laughs> Labour responded that this government is intent on attacking and undermining the BBC. Downing Street has denied having an anti-BBC agenda. Perish the thought. But how do you fairly assess bias? Alex, I was wondering about this. Would it be more accurate to say that the BBC has a number of different biases in different sections of its output, and sometimes it's to the left and sometimes it's to the right? No. Okay. I mean, I don't know. Next question. I, I don't know. <laughs> my, my theory, my theory Moving has, on. My theory has always been that the BBC actually has a pro-government bias. Whatever government happens to be the government of the day, that there is a sense that they see themselves a little bit as, you know, the voice of Britain. That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like to hear more every week without ads and a day early, then you can sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, oh, called what else, every Monday morning and some merchandise. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.